Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, the final story from our series, Life's Big Leaps. Researchers have begun to identify the symphony of biological triggers behind the expansion of the human brain. Then, in another story about a major evolutionary transition, an ancient class of creature is redefining scientists' definition of sex. First, How Humans Evolved Supersized Brains by Ferris Jaber There it was, sitting on the mantelpiece, staring at her with hollow eyes and a naked grin. She could not stop staring back. It looked distinctly like the fossilized skull of an extinct baboon. That was the sort of thing Josephine Sammons was likely to know. At the time, 1924, she was one of the only female students of anatomy attending the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa. On this particular day, she was visiting her friend Pat Izod, whose father managed a quarry company that had been excavating limestone near the town of Tong. Workers had unearthed numerous fossils during the excavation, and the Izots had kept this one as a memento. Sammons brought news of the skull to her professor, Raymond Dart, an anthropologist with a particular interest in the brain. He was incredulous. Very few primate fossils had been uncovered this far south in Africa. If the Tong site really housed such fossils, it would be an invaluable treasure trove. The next morning, Sammons brought Dart the skull, and he could see that she was right. The skull was undeniably simian. Dart promptly arranged to have other primate fossils from the Tong Quarry sent to him. Later that year, as he was preparing to attend a close friend's wedding, he received a large crate. One of the specimens it contained was so mesmerizing that he nearly missed the ceremony. It came in two pieces. A natural endocast, the fossilized mold of the inner cranium, preserving the brain's topography, and its matching skeletal face, with eye socket, nose, jaw, and teeth all intact. Dart noticed right away that this was the fossil of an extinct ape, not a monkey. The teeth suggested that the individual had died at age six or so. The point where the spinal cord had joined the skull was too far forward for a knuckle walker, indicating bipedalism and the endocast, which was a little too large for a non-human ape of that age, had surface features characteristic of a human brain. After further study, Dart reached a bold conclusion. This was the fossil of a previously unknown ancestor of modern humans, Australopithecus africanus, the man-ape of South Africa. At first, the greater scientific community lambasted Dart's proposal. If the Tong child as the fossil was nicknamed, truly belonged to a homonym, surely it would have a far larger brain. Its cranium was a bit bigger than that of a chimpanzee, but not by much. Besides, it was generally believed that humans had evolved in Asia, not Africa. The absurdly tiny illustration accompanying Dart's 1925 Nature paper and his initial possessiveness of the specimen did not help matters. Eventually, though, as prominent experts got to see the Tong child for themselves and similar fossil discoveries came to light, attitudes began to change. 
By the 1950s, anthropologists had accepted that Tong was indeed a homonym, and that an exceptionally large brain had not always been a distinguishing characteristic of humans. Dean Falk, a professor of anthropology at Florida State University and an expert on brain evolution, has called the Tong child one of the most, if not the most important homonym discoveries of the 20th century. In subsequent decades, by uncovering and comparing other fossil skulls and endocasts, paleontologists documented one of the most dramatic transitions in human evolution. We might call it the brain boom. Humans, chimps, and bonobos split from their last common ancestor between 6 and 8 million years ago. For the next few million years, the brains of early homonyms did not grow much larger than those of our ape ancestors and cousins. Starting around 3 million years ago, however, the homonym brain began a massive expansion. By the time our species, Homo sapiens, emerged about 200,000 years ago, the human brain had swelled from about 350 grams to more than 1,300 grams. In that 3 million year sprint, the human brain had almost quadrupled the size its predecessors had attained over the previous 60 million years of primate evolution. Fossils establish the brain boom as fact, but they tell us next to nothing about how and why the human brain grew so large so quickly. There are plenty of theories, of course, especially regarding why. Increasingly complex social networks, a culture built around tool use and collaboration, the challenge of adapting to a mercurial and often harsh climate. Any or all of these evolutionary pressures could have selected for bigger brains. Although these possibilities are fascinating, they are extremely difficult to test. In the last eight years, however, scientists have started to answer the how of human brain expansion. That is, the question of how the supersizing happened on a cellular level, and how human physiology reconfigured itself to accommodate a dramatically enlarged and energy-guzzling brain. It was all speculation up until now, but we finally have the tools to really get some traction, said Gregory Ray, an evolutionary biologist at Duke University. What kinds of mutations occurred and what did they do? We're starting to get answers and a deeper appreciation for just how complicated this process was. One scientist in particular has transformed the way researchers size up brains. Rather than fixating on mass or volume as a proxy for brain power, she is focused on counting a brain's constituent parts. In her laboratory at the Institute of Biomedical Sciences at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, Susanna Herculano Housel routinely dissolves brains into a soup of nuclei, cells genetic control rooms. Each neuron has one nucleus. By tagging the nuclei with fluorescent molecules and measuring the glow, she can get a precise tally of individual brain cells. Using this method on a wide variety of mammalian brains, she has shown that Contrary to long-standing assumptions, larger mammalian brains do not always have more neurons. And the ones they do have are not always distributed in the same way. The human brain has 86 billion neurons in all. 69 billion in the cerebellum, a dense lump at the back of the brain that helps orchestrate basic bodily functions and movement. 16 billion in the cerebral cortex, the brain's thick corona and the seat of our most sophisticated mental talents, such as self-awareness, language, problem-solving, and abstract thought. And 1 billion in the brainstem and its extensions into the core of the brain.
In contrast, the elephant brain, which is three times the size of our own, has 251 billion neurons in its cerebellum, which helps manage a giant versatile trunk, and only 5.6 billion in its cortex. Considering brain mass or volume alone masks these important distinctions. Based on her studies, Herculano Housel has concluded that primates evolved a way to pack far more neurons into the cerebral cortex than other mammals did. The great apes are tiny compared to elephants and whales, yet their cortices are far denser. Orangutans and gorillas have 9 billion cortical neurons, and chimps have 6 billion. Of all the great apes, we have the largest brains, so we come out on top with our 16 billion neurons in the cortex. In fact, humans appear to have the most cortical neurons of any species on Earth. That's the clearest difference between human and non-human brains, Herculano Housel says. It's all about the architecture, not just the size. The human brain is also unique in its unsurpassed gluttony. Although it makes up only 2% of body weight, the human brain consumes a whopping 20% of the body's total energy at rest. In contrast, the chimpanzee brain needs only half of that. Researchers have long wondered how the human body adapted to sustain such a uniquely ravenous organ. In 1995, the anthropologist Leslie Aiello and the evolutionary biologist Peter Wheeler proposed the expensive tissue hypothesis as a possible answer. The underlying logic is straightforward. Human brain evolution likely required a metabolic trade-off. In order for the brain to grow, other organs, namely the gut, had to shrink and energy that would typically have gone to the latter was redirected to the former. For evidence, they pointed to data showing that primates with larger brains have smaller intestines. A few years later, the anthropologist Richard Wrangham built on this idea, arguing that the invention of cooking was crucial to human brain evolution. Soft-cooked foods are much easier to digest than tough, raw ones, yielding more calories for less gastrointestinal work, Perhaps, then, learning to cook permitted a bloating of the human brain at the expense of the gut. Other researchers have proposed that similar trade-offs might have occurred between brain and muscle, given how much stronger chimps are than humans. Collectively, these hypotheses and observations of modern anatomy are compelling, but they are based on the echoes of biological changes that are thought to have occurred millions of years ago. To be certain of what happened— to pinpoint the physiological adaptations that made the brain's evolutionary growth spurt possible, we will have to dive deeper than flesh, into our very genome. About eight years ago, Ray and his colleagues began to investigate a family of genes that influenced the movement of glucose into cells to be used as energy. One member of the gene family is especially active in brain tissue, whereas another is most active in muscle. If the size of the human brain required a metabolic trade-off between brain tissue and muscle, then these genes should behave differently in humans and chimpanzees. Ray and his team collected brain, muscle, and liver samples from deceased humans and chimpanzees and attempted to measure gene activity in each sample. When a cell expresses a gene, it translates the DNA first into a signature messenger RNA, or mRNA sequence and subsequently into a chain of amino acids that forms a protein, 
Varying levels of distinct mRNAs can therefore provide a snapshot of gene activity in a particular type of tissue. Ray's team extracted mRNA from the tissues and amplified it many times over in the lab in order to measure the relative abundance of different mRNAs. They found that the brain-centric glucose transporting gene was 3.2 times more active in human brain tissue than in the chimp brain, whereas the muscle-centric gene was 1.6 times more active in chimp muscle than in human muscle. Yet the two genes behaved similarly in the liver of both species. Given that the human and chimp gene sequences are nearly identical, something else must explain their variable behavior. Ray and his colleagues found some intriguing differences between the genes corresponding regulatory sequences, stretches of DNA that stimulate or stifle gene activity. In humans, but not in chimps, the regulatory sequences for the muscle and brain-focused glucose transporting genes had accumulated more mutations than would be expected by chance alone, indicating that these regions had undergone accelerated evolution. In other words, there was a strong evolutionary pressure to modify the human regulatory regions in a way that sapped energy from muscle and channeled it to the brain. Genes had corroborated the expensive tissue hypothesis in a way fossils never could. Last year, computational biologist Kasia Bosek, who now works at the Okinawa Institute for Science and Technology in Japan, published a similar study that examined metabolism from a different angle. In addition to looking at gene expression, Bozek and her colleagues analyzed levels of metabolites, a diverse group of small molecules that include sugars, nucleic acids, and neurotransmitters. Many metabolites are either necessary for metabolism or produced by it. Different organs have distinct metabolite profiles depending on what they do and how much energy they require. In general, metabolite levels in the organs of closely related species are more in sync than levels between distantly related species. Bozik found that the metabolite profiles of human and chimp kidneys, for example, were pretty similar, but the variation between chimp and human brain metabolite levels was four times higher than would be expected based on a typical rate of evolution. Muscle metabolites differed from the expected levels by a factor of seven. A single gene can probably regulate a lot of metabolites, Bozik said. So even if the difference is not huge at the gene level, you could get a big difference in the metabolite levels. Bozik and her colleagues then pitted 42 humans, including college basketball players and professional rock climbers, against chimpanzees and macaques, in a test of strength. All of the primates had to pull a sliding shelf saddled with weights toward themselves. Accounting for body size and weight, the chimps and macaques were twice as strong as the humans. It's not entirely clear why, but it is possible that our primate cousins get more power out of their muscles than we get out of ours, because they feed their muscles more energy. Compared to other primates, we lost muscle power in favor of sparing energy for our brains, Bozik said. It doesn't mean that our muscles are inherently weaker. We might just have a different metabolism. Meanwhile, Ray had turned to his due colleague, Deborah Silver, an expert in embryonic brain development, to embark on a pioneering experiment. Not only were they going to identify relevant genetic mutations from our brain's evolutionary past, they were also going to weave those mutations into the genomes of lab mice and observe the consequences. This is something no one had attempted before, Silver said. The researchers began by scanning a database of human-accelerated regions 
or HARS. These regulatory DNA sequences are common to all vertebrates, but have rapidly mutated in humans. They decided to focus on HAIR5, which seem to control genes that orchestrate brain development. The human version of HAIR5 differs from its chimp correlate by 16 DNA letters. Silver and Ray introduced the chimpanzee copy of HAIR5 into one group of mice and the human addition into a separate group. They then observed how the embryonic mice brains grew. After nine days of development, mice embryos begin to form a cortex, the outer, wrinkly layer of the brain associated with the most sophisticated mental talents. On day 10, the human version of HAIR5 was much more active in the budding mice brains than the chimp copy, ultimately producing a brain that was 12% larger. Further tests revealed that HAIR5 shortened the time required for certain embryonic brain cells to divide and multiply, from 12 hours to 9. Mice with the human HAIR5 were creating new neurons more rapidly. This sort of study would have been impossible to do 10 years ago when we didn't have the full genome sequences, Silver said. It's really exciting. But she also stressed that it will take a great deal more research to fully answer how the human brain blew up. It's a mistake to think we can explain brain size with just one or two mutations. I think that is dead wrong. We have probably acquired many little changes that are in some ways co-opting the developmental rules. Ray concurs. It wasn't just a couple of mutations and bam, you get a bigger brain. As we learn more about the changes between human and chimp brains, we realize there will be lots and lots of genes involved, each contributing a piece to that. The door is now open to get in there and really start understanding. The brain is modified in so many subtle and non-obvious ways. Although the mechanics of the human brain's expansion have long been mysterious, its importance has rarely been questioned. Again and again, researchers have cited the evolutionary surge in human brain size as the key reason for our exceptionally high degree of intelligence, compared to other animals. As recent research on whale and elephant brains makes clear, size is not everything, but it certainly counts for something. The reason we have so many more cortical neurons than our great ape cousins is not that we have denser brains, but rather that we evolved ways to support brains that are large enough to accommodate all those extra cells. There's a danger, though, in becoming too enamored with our own big heads. Yes, a large brain packed with neurons is essential to what we consider high intelligence, but it's not sufficient. Consider for a moment what the world would be like if dolphins had hands. Dolphins are impressively brainy. They have demonstrated self-awareness, cooperation, planning, and the rudiments of language and grammar. Compared to apes, though, they are severely limited in their ability to manipulate the world's raw materials. Dolphins will never enter the Stone Age. Flippers cannot finesse. Similarly, we know that chimps and bonobos can understand human language, and even form simple sentences with touchscreen keyboards, but their vocal tracks are inadequate for producing the distinct series of sounds required for speech. Conversely, some birds have the right vocal anatomy to flawlessly mimic human speech, but their brains are not large enough or wired in the right way to master complex language. No matter how large the human brain grew, or how much energy we lavished upon it, it would have been useless without the right body. 
three particularly crucial adaptations worked in tandem with our burgeoning brain to dramatically increase our overall intelligence. Bipedalism, which freed up our hands for toolmaking, firebuilding, and hunting. Manual dexterity, surpassing that of any other animal. And a vocal tract that allowed us to speak and sing. Human intelligence, then, cannot be traced to a single organ, no matter how large. It emerged from a serendipitous confluence of adaptations throughout the body. Despite our ongoing obsession with the size of our noggins, the fact is that our intelligence has always been so much bigger than our brain. Second, Ancient Survivors Could Redefine Sex by Emily Singer If all the animals on Earth could offer a single lesson for long-term survival, it might be this. Sex works. Out of the estimated 8 million animal species, all but a smattering are known to reproduce sexually, and those that don't are babes in evolutionary terms newly evolved animals that recently lost the ability to mate. Sex must be important. If you lose it, you go extinct, said David Mark Welch, a biologist at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Yet even though sex is the overwhelmingly dominant method of animal reproduction, scientists aren't sure why that is. Mark Welch estimates that researchers have developed around 50 to 60 hypotheses to explain the primacy of sex in the animal kingdom. Some of these theories have been biological battlegrounds for more than a century. Studying the exception could help scientists understand the rule. And the exception in this case is a class of creatures called deloid rotifers, microscopic swimmers that split off from their sexual ancestors 40 million to 100 million years ago. These bizarre animals are chaste survivors in a carnal world. They can withstand more radiation than any other animal tested to date. They can inhabit any surface that gets wet, from damp tree lichens to evaporated bird baths. And without water, they hunger down in a state of total desiccation and then snap back to life with just a drop of liquid. A recent analysis of the deloid genome has begun to reveal how asexual mechanisms can mimic the DNA-swapping characteristic of sex, perhaps even surpassing it in effectiveness. The new work has shown deloids to be so good at generating genetic diversity that some researchers now question the very definition of sex, with some arguing for a more expansive one that doesn't require the orchestrated swapping of genetic material. Others think that, even if the traditional definition of sex remains intact, the unique genetic strategies of the deloid rotifer will illuminate the mechanisms that make sex such a successful evolutionary strategy. If we can figure out the problem that deloids solved, said Mark Welch, who has been studying rotifers since the 1980s, we can figure out why sex is important. Reduced to its most basic form, Sex is about the exchange of DNA. At the heart of this transaction is a process called meiosis, where chromosomes inherited from each parent pair up and swap pieces. The chromosomes are then divided among daughter cells. The result is a set of cells whose genome is different from that of either parent. The benefits of this exchange seem obvious. 
the genetic shuffle creates a diverse population, and a diverse population should be better able to cope with a changing environment. This basic idea was first proposed by the German biologist August Weismann more than a century ago. But sex also has substantial drawbacks, presenting something of a puzzle to evolutionary biologists. A sexual organism passes on only half of its genes, which significantly reduces its genetic legacy. And because sex shuffles the genome, it breaks up genetic combinations that work well. In addition, an animal that wants to mate must spend time and energy searching for a mate. Once that match is found, the act of sex carries the risk of sexually transmitted diseases, a very real danger in the natural world. Given the drawbacks of sexual reproduction, we might expect the animal kingdom to be filled with both sexual and asexual creatures. But this is not the case. Sex overwhelmingly predominates. After hundreds of years, we still don't know what's so important about it, Mark Welch said. One of the big quandaries is the contrast between the apparent short-term advantages of asexuality versus the apparent long-term advantages of sex. How do you even get the chance to reap the long-term benefits? Out of all the hypotheses biologists have developed, Weismann's basic premise, that sex gives animals the variation needed to deal with a changing environment, is still a top contender. In the century since he proposed it, theoretical biologists have devised specific mechanisms that would explain why it works. For example, sex might unite two important adaptations. One group of animals might develop a tolerance to high temperatures, for example, another to a specific toxin. Without sex, those two capabilities would be unlikely to come together in one species. According to a hypothesis known as the Red Queen, which is sometimes considered a variant of Weissman's proposal, sex might help animals in their eternal arms race against pathogens. The genetic shuffling in sexual reproduction would help them quickly evolve defenses against rapidly morphing enemies. The name of the hypothesis derives from a passage in Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll, in which the Red Queen tells Alice to run as fast as she can in order to stay in the same place. Another theory, called Muller's Ratchet, first put forth by the geneticist Herman Muller in the 1960s, suggests that sexual reproduction helps rid the genome of harmful mistakes. In asexual organisms, new mutations occur in each generation and are passed on to the next, eventually driving the species to extinction. It's called a ratchet because, in theory, once the genome develops an error, it's stuck. There is no plausible way back. The genetic shuffling that occurs during sex could act like a dust cloth to wipe away the offending mutations. Scientists have accumulated evidence in support of each of these hypotheses, yet researchers find it difficult to test any of them directly. Deloids offer a complementary approach. Understanding how they cope without sex will help us understand why sex is important, said Diego Fontanetto, a biologist at the Institute of Ecosystem Study in Italy. Deloids have been squirming beneath scientists' microscopes since 1696. In all that time, no one has spotted a male. Sexual rotifer varieties have clearly distinguishable males, with a penis-like organ and sperm. No one thought much about this curious void for nearly 200 years until biologists first began to study asexual reproduction in animals, Mark Welch said. 
such a long absence of males is telling, but it's not definitive proof of asexuality. Other organisms that were once thought to go without intercourse were later found to mate under rare circumstances, often triggered by stress. There have been many putative asexuals, but when people looked more closely, they did find some kind of secret sex going on, Mark Welch said. Beginning in the late 1980s, Matthew Messelson, a renowned biologist at Harvard, argued that perhaps the deloid genome could be used to test the organism's asexuality. Most animals have chromosomes made of two nearly identical copies of each gene, a consequence of the pairing and mixing that goes on during meiosis. In asexual animals, this mixing wouldn't happen, and the two copies should remain stubbornly distinct. Just as the Human Genome Project was wrapping up in 2000, Messelson and Mark Welch, who had been Messelson's graduate student, published the first results of their exploration of the deloid genome. They found that deloids often had two very different copies of their genes. But the deloid genome would soon reveal even more interesting secrets. The animals often had not just two copies of a gene as humans do, but four copies. Scientists began to suspect that At some point in Deloid's evolutionary history, the entire genome replicated, leaving the creatures with an extra set of chromosomes. What were these chromosomes doing? To investigate, researchers had to sequence the entire genome. Previously, they had examined single genes or bits of chromosomes. In 2009, a team that included Mark Welch and Karen von Donink, a biologist at the University of Namur in Belgium, received a grant to undertake the work. What they found was more intriguing than they anticipated. The deloid genome is composed of more than just deloid genes. It is a Frankensteinian collage of foreign DNA. Nearly 10% of the deloid genome comes from outside the animal kingdom entirely, with fungi, plants, and bacteria all contributing. This percentage is much higher than for other animals. In this regard, deloids more closely resemble bacteria, which frequently incorporate alien DNA into their genomes, a process known as horizontal gene transfer. What's more, the deloid chromosomes are a jumble. Bits and pieces of them have been moved around like a mismatched puzzle. The highly rearranged chromosome was new and unexpected, said John Logston, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Iowa who was not involved in the project. It's very unusual. Nature sometimes jumbles a chromosome, but major rearrangements in sexually reproducing organisms render the unlucky individual sterile. If the maternally inherited chromosome is structured ABC, it can't pair with a paternally inherited chromosome that's ordered ACB. Some hybrid species, such as mules, are sterile for a similar reason. The chromosomes from the horse mother and donkey father are mismatched. The full genome sequence provided the most direct evidence yet that deloid rotifers are asexual. No organism with such a mismatched set of chromosomes could possibly go through traditional meiosis. Over millions of years, the genome has undergone so many rearrangements, it's no longer possible for the chromosomes to pair, Mark Welch said. These two striking properties, incorporating large amounts of alien DNA into their genomes and rearranging their own DNA, might help deloids surmount the problem of genetic diversity that plagues asexual animals. There are quite a few ways in which asexual organisms can apparently overcome some of the disadvantages of not having sex, 
said Bill Berkey, an evolutionary geneticist at the University of Arizona, who was not involved in the sequencing project. Deloid's ability to take up foreign DNA can potentially give them new powers, allowing them to break down a toxin, for example. Copying and replacing pieces of their own chromosomes can sometimes boost the effect of beneficial mutations and remove harmful ones, defying Muller's ratchet. Indeed, deloids appear to have adopted an evolutionary strategy similar to that of bacteria, a highly successful class of organisms that also lack conventional sex. Researchers working on the evolutionary significance of sex often tended to overlook the fact that bacteria have been doing very well without sex for millions of years, said Jean-Francois Flo, a biologist at the University College London who participated in the Deloid Genome Project. Moreover, Deloid's extra pair of chromosomes might generate additional genetic diversity. The redundant pair of chromosomes provides a new reservoir of genetic material that is free to evolve and take on new functions, which might help the Deloids cope with changing environments in the future, Fontanetto said. Yet, not everyone is convinced that Deloids are entirely asexual. To me, the evidence is not completely slam-dunk in terms of demonstrating asexuality. Logsdon said. There are a bunch of weird things about the genome, but are they directly related to putative asexuality or a consequence of other things, even though it's difficult to imagine how Deloid's garbled chromosomes might pair for meiosis, they could have some very unusual or infrequent process by which chromosomes pair and segregate, Logsdon said. So far, data from the Deloid genome suggests that these creatures have survived by generating lots of genetic diversity through asexual means. But researchers haven't been able to prove it, nor have they shown that this variation is enough to mimic sex. It gets back to the question we keep asking theoretical biologists. How much sex is enough, Mark Waltz said. In other words, how much genetic scrambling does an organism need to do in order to mimic the benefits of sexual reproduction? To answer that question, scientists will need to measure genetic variability among a number of deloids and compare it to sexually reproducing populations. Scientists don't yet have enough data to distinguish among various theories for why sex is so important, and it's possible that a number of these potential mechanisms contribute to deloids' lengthy survival. One thing that gets theoretical biologists upset is to suggest many theories might be true, Mark Welch said. But there's no particular biological reason that many theories can't be right. Perhaps the more interesting question now is how Deloid succeeded when so many other asexual species have failed. Van Donink is now exploring whether their striking ability to survive drought is the key to their long-term asexual existence. When a Deloid dries out, its genome shatters into fragments, which the animal can stitch back together once it's rehydrated. It's possible that this remarkable DNA repair function allows deloids to scramble their chromosomes and to take up foreign DNA floating around in the environment, fixing these fragments into the genome as it recomposes. The result? A kind of supercharged genetic recombination without sex. Researchers are testing this idea by exposing deloids to rounds of radiation and desiccation and analyzing how the genome rearranges itself. Early evidence hints that deloids could also assimilate DNA from other members of their own species. 
That's particularly significant because it would resemble traditional sex. If they do genetic exchange among each other, then they have some kind of sex, Ben Donning said. That process wouldn't require meiosis, an essential component of sexual reproduction as currently defined. But in Van Donick's view, it might be time to broaden the definition. Perhaps sex can be defined simply as a genetic exchange among members of the same species. Deloids might be the exception that changes the rule. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.